This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Here comes Sacramento. Three on one. Bagley the step. Bagley with the dunk. And you can put it in the book and send it to the left. There it is. Buddy Hill alone at the top. Of the Kings record book. Oh, I like to see Fox Force 5 in the open court. Fox into the lane. Oh, if you don't like that, you don't like Kings basketball. Welcome back to another episode of the King's Pulse Podcast. My name is Brendan Nunez. Got Rich Ivanowski on here like we usually do. How you doing, Rich? I'm doing great today. I'm doing great. And uh, I'm excited to finally be talking about the Kings again. We've done about 10 episodes on other teams trying to get everybody ready and prepared for the upcoming season uh, but today we have a very special guest it's James Ham of NBC and he is here today to to talk to us about our actual team I'm very excited about that so how are you doing today James I'm good it, it's a nice little Sunday morning I got my coffee and I'm ready to roll yeah we appreciate you coming on here and taking the time and we were messing around a little bit before we pressed the record button, but I think where we wanted to start with is how you got involved in all of this. Obviously, you're writing for the team, been doing that for the while, and I think the very first step of that is how did you become a Kings fan in the first place? Because we're all fans first. You know, uh, the funny thing about being a journalist that you have to learn, like, um, you know, you sometimes you go into these things and you have no idea what you're getting into, and you're like, okay. I don't know how I got here, but I'm now like in a media box and like, what are the rules? And one of the biggest things that I found is that you have to remain stoic in, in the, uh, in the media section. You're not allowed to be a fan. You're not allowed to cheer. Uh, and I think the one thing that's interesting is giving up fandom, which is, is totally bizarre. So I, I can be a fan of the Oakland A's, although I have had to cover a couple of A's games here and there. Um, I can still be a fan of the San Francisco 49ers. I can be a fan of basketball in general, but technically I, I can't be a fan of the team. And you, you think to yourself, how exactly do you get to that point? But it, it just happens. I don't know when it happens and you're more focused on like my kids are fans. Uh, and, and that's cool because I get to like bring them up and they get to ask me questions all the time that I don't. And I tell them things that no one else knows that. You know, I, I can't say on podcasts and stuff like that about players or about things like that. But it's it's a weird detachment that you have to have. So I'll start there. Um, but it does start with some sort of fandom. And um, I was uh, just an everyday average guy looking for an outlet for sports. Um, it, it's been, I don't even know what year it was when I started writing, um, but it was with Sacktown royalty and I was one of a small group of people that uh, that you know migrated over to the new platform when they they went to SB Nation um, and, and it's just it's something I had found uh, that was an outlet uh, I mentioned this to you guys off uh, when we were just chatting um, you know I my wife uh, went through undergrad and and then law school and I was working full-time we had a son uh, when she was in law school um, and then when she got her first job I took a step back and I went back to school myself uh, and stayed at home with our with our son and then right before my senior year at Davis we had another son so I, I had this window where I was looking for an outlet uh, and I, I found Sacktown Royalty and I wrote quite a bit and I was in the comment sections all the time but I wasn't uh you guys have a lot of featured writers now you have a lot of guys that are sort of on staff quote unquote on staff um that wasn't really the case then it was really just uh Tom Ziller and 
um, I think ACUS and maybe section and they were all sort of like they they would write the main page stuff and then we would have fan posts and fan shots and um and a lot of my stuff would get pulled up in front page but really i was one of the guys in the comment section that was arguing and fighting all the time and guys like otis and i or pookie guru would have like epic battles uh and i decided to take some time off um after the 2009-2010 season and uh when I took some time off from writing at Sacktown and, and hanging out on Sacktown because I think all your listeners and your readers on Sacktown you can get sucked in you really can and it's it's a really cool platform uh it still even to this day has the best uh sort of comment um, the way that you comment, not just like the platform of comments, um, it's it's not something that you find. It, it doesn't usually have um, sort of the way that you guys can go back and forth. I, I think it's great. And um, the threads that are there in the comment sections are great, even when they are hammering me, people. Uh, but um, I took some time off and uh, then I got asked to take on a... Uh, a blog myself. Uh, someone was opening up a blog network, uh, and I decided to, first I said no, and then I said okay. Uh, it was uh, summer 2010, and there was um, not a lot of coverage on the team at that point, and I decided to be a companion piece to Sacktown Royalty. I, I even talked to Tom Ziller and, and Akis and the guys and said, look, I, I don't want to compete. I, I don't care about comments. I don't care about all that stuff, but what I would like to do is be a beat writer for the blogs because I thought that there was a huge void there. Um, and so that's what I did. I, uh, my first, my first objective, I, I started making these small objectives, which was strange because I'm not someone who usually sets goals. Um, so I started writing, I started getting a lot of people, uh, filtering to the site. All of a sudden you start getting like, you know, 2,000 fans a day, 2,000 people reading your stuff a day, and you're like, what in the world's going on? And it was this weird buildup, and I was, you know, uh, putting my stuff up on Sacktown Royalty, but links where you could see what I was writing, um, and trying not to be intrusive. And then um, I, I said to myself, you know what, if I want to do this, I've got to try to get to Media Day. So I reached out to Darren May, who was then the uh, the media director for the Kings, and I said, look, is there any way I can come? You know, this is what I've been doing. Here's my link, the link to my site. Uh, these are the numbers I'm doing. Is there any way I can come to media day? He ignored me like two or three times. Finally, the day before media day, he gets back to me and says, fine, you can come, but just, you know, don't cause any trouble. Don't, don't get yourself in. And I'm like, okay, that's fine. So I showed up with a recorder and like a flip video phone. Um, and. I just went to work and it's the strangest thing, but, um, I asked if I could go to training camp. Uh, it took him a day to get back to me. So I missed the first day of training camp, but I showed up for the, the remaining like 20 something days. Uh, and then by the end of that, uh, that training camp, I had built a relationship with Paul Westfall. Um, I had somehow got credentialed to go to the preseason games, which I was shocked. So I kept, thinking to myself, okay, if I can get to media day, that's one thing. And then it's like, okay, maybe they'll credential me for a preseason game. And then maybe they'll let me go to the next one. And then maybe they'll let me go to some games. And that first season, um, I went to, uh, let's see, all 41 games. I was credentialed. Um, they welcomed me with open arms and I became part of the family uh, again, a relationship that I had built with Paul Westfall was really big in that. He actually had gone to media relations guys and said, look, I need you to let him in the door. I like him. Uh, I like the way he writes and he covers us. Um, and I entered this really strange world, which I hope everyone gets, all of the Sacktown guys get a chance to enter, which is the media world where you have Aileen voice on and you've got Sam Amick showing up and you've got all of these heavy hitters uh, you know, Mark, Mark Spears lives down in the Bay area and Scott Howard Cooper was there a bunch of that, you know, a lot. And so you're starting to see them craft their stories while you're sitting there interviewing people. And for a little while I, I kind of held back and I, I just sat back and watched, but it didn't take long for me to like, you know what, this is really, 
in the no one at that time was looking at the full package. Uh, Aileen was just a columnist. Jason Jones was was just a beat writer. They had a camera guy there. They got their photos from Getty or whoever. Um, and, and that's how they did their business. But as an independent, that's not how you have to do your business. You have to, you know, you have to buy a recorder. You have to buy a camera. You have to buy a video camera. You've got to take your own still shots because you can't afford Getty images. Uh, there's all these things that you have to think of and ways that you get around like the normal thing because you can't just go do a Google search and steal someone else's photo unless you're just completely, you have no morals. <laughs> Um, so you, you really have to become like everything. And, and to me, um, I really enjoyed learning how to do video and I really enjoyed like learning the process of transcribing and, and writing and, and all this stuff. But then I started looking at the other aspects and, you know, that's why I've had a podcast for, I don't know, eight years. I think it is, oh, this will be my ninth season. So we started maybe midway through that season. So anyway, to make a long story short, I jumped in the fray. Um, I, I got to go to all 41 games. Uh, during that offseason, um, I was approached by Zach Harper, uh, who used to run the Daily Dime for ESPN and who owned Cowbell Kingdom, which is a True Hoop affiliate, at ESPN True Hoop blog. Uh, he said, look, I'm going to move to Minnesota to go see about a girl. And, uh, I'm looking for someone to take over the site. So I'll work with you this season, but then hand it over to you. Uh, and I said, okay. And next thing you know, um, I've, I've like really made not just a career out of it, but really it's a 24 hour news cycle that consumes every single moment of your life. Uh, which is, which is fun. It's also tiring. Uh, you know, I was in Europe last, uh, two weeks ago. And I, I found myself in a, uh, in an Airbnb in Rome, um, like confirming sources that Kosakufis had gone to Russia and, and breaking other stuff, like reaching out to people. And it's just like, man, you just have to shut it off, but it's hard to shut off. But that's kind of my story. I, I started the Sacktown Royalty. Um, I love all your guys. I've been friends with, with all of those guys for years. Um, a huge group of us uh, behind the scenes were uh, the Here We Stay group, uh, the original Here We Stay group, uh, Blake Ellington, um, Tom Ziller, Akis section. Um, you know, we had this tight group of guys that started, you know, in that, that first season started worrying about relocation, um, which I had to go through, you know, three bouts with relocation um, and, and just really it's been a wild ride but um i've every home game since i started except for two i've been to uh, which i missed uh i went to sloan in 2011 uh and i went to um the board of governors meeting when they're deciding the fate of the kings in i think 2000 well that was the the second half of the season when they are deciding whether they're going to go to Anaheim or not. Um, I missed a game and those are the only two games I've ever missed at home. And I've covered, I don't know how many games at this point. Uh, but on the road, uh, I go on the road sometimes, uh, I go in studio a lot. Um, I don't know. It's been a wild ride and that's, that's kind of my story. Yeah, it's a pretty incredible story. And I will say, as someone who's just sort of entered into this world, I thought, you know, just two years ago, I would have told you that the way you become a sports journalist is you go to school and you get a degree and you get hired. Uh, it doesn't sound like that's exactly the path. Uh, or, or does that, is your path unique? Do you think that people out there can just do that? You know, I think that there was a time where, um, I mean, because when I look around the media room now, uh, I, I can't even count how many guys got, they cut their teeth at, as a member of the true hoop, like sort of business model, which was their business model was to not pay us and to have us work for free, uh, and to steal our content and pull it up onto ESPN and then not pay us for that. And so their business model was strong for them. Um, but when I look around the room, you know, and you got guys like Zach and you got guys like, Ethan Strauss and uh, Tom Haverstrow, 
you know, we really did become like an interesting alternative. Like, um, we're able to look at the game differently than, than reporters. And I still like, even I remember like three or four years in, um, I, I was writing something and I got highly technical about, uh, you know, collective bargaining stuff. And, uh, you know, it, to me, it was really interesting to the readers. I think it was probably horribly dry. Um, but I had become friends by going, the Sloan conference and, and by going to different events with Larry Kuhn. Uh, he's been on my podcast a million times and, you know, he's the foremost expert on the collective bargaining agreement. I, I really got into it even before I had started, um, doing anything with cowbell when I was at you know, just writing for Sacktown, I would get into conversations all the time about the collective bargaining agreement. Um, so these are like, you have to understand that like when you come from a different background, you have a different perspective. And, um, I, I've said this many times, but, and, and I don't know if it's a good thing or it's a bad thing because I had to, sorry, I had to self learn a lot of this stuff, but, um, I've never taken a journalism course ever. Uh, and I've never taken a broadcasting course ever. I have a degree in us history from UC Davis. I have a minor in comparative literature, which the comparative literature thing really does help, uh, the history degree, History people, we write more than anyone else. So it's not like I couldn't write. Um, but you know, history degree, you write way more than any English or journalism, you know, major. It's, it's just absolutely insane. Um, but I think there is avenues for someone to, to pop up. And I think that's what makes Twitter so interesting because that's where people are cutting their teeth and making their name now. Um, you can still have a name and, and start building stuff through a website and, and so, but it, it's kind of hard to stand out, which is why I always wanted to be, when I did break away, I wanted to be independent because, uh, Tom had asked me, like when I first started doing the beat writing gig, Hey, why don't you just join us as our beat writer? And I said, well, I kind of want to stay separate because things can get lost and muddied in, in a fan blog. I, I want to be like, I want to help you guys, but I don't want to jump in fully. So, um, as far as like, are there avenues? I, I think there are, but the new way that you have to think and, and work in the digital world is nuts. And I see, I see young guys like Matt George, uh, really, you know, trying to carve out a niche for himself. He's a radio guy, but he's doing some writing and, you know, he's doing podcasts and all these things. It, you know, you have to be unique in what you do. You have to be really thoughtful about what you, you're doing. You have to be, uh, sort of, you have to be cautious. In a lot of senses, you've got to make sure that you're protecting uh, your reputation and building your brand the right way. Uh, it's why I don't think anyone has ever seen me curse on Twitter. Uh, you don't see my politics on Twitter, um, which, you know, is really hard. And it's really hard for a lot of journalists to not put that stuff out there. But you have to protect like who you are and what you are from the outside. It's it's very rare that anyone sees pictures of my family and it's only when I go on a big vacation and I'm like, you know what? I don't want to fully detach and I'm not posting them on Twitter all the time, but I am doing some Instagram stuff of just my family stuff. It's really, it's, it's weird, uh, how this, the media world is and whether you can break into it or not is, I think it's really interesting and I, I think there are a lot of avenues to do it. Um, and I just hear my son yell cause he's watching a replay of the Man U game right now. Um, but I think that's the biggest thing for me. Like I started this, uh, I remember walking in, uh, one of the rallies and I had brought my son, Toby, who was either, he was probably six and he's entering his junior year in high school now. And he's almost six foot tall and he's bigger than me. Um, and he's a full grown man. And it's just weird to see how my path has changed and how, how I've grown and become something different. And, and it, it's just, it's an interesting world that I, I get to live in. And I don't think I would change anything um, at all from my path. And so the, I think, yes, you can still do it the way that I did it, but I think everyone's path at this point is completely different. I don't think journalism school going and just, you know, getting a master's in journalism. I, I've had guys work for me at Cowbell that had masters in journalism from USC who were editors for us. Like they edited 
my Sunday musings every week. And they're really good at it. But I don't think you have to, it, it really does come down to having a voice, that voice being unique and individual, and then doing the work, which is not always easy. It's a, it's a glamorous job and behind the scenes, it's not nearly as glamorous. And especially when you're riding four or five times a day and, uh, you get to shoot around at 10 a.m. and you live an hour from the stadium and you leave the arena at, you know, 12 or one in the morning and you got an hour drive home <laughs> and you end up working 80 hours a week during the season at least. And then, when you get to the off season, it's really hard to leave it behind and you just keep going and your mind can't stop. So I hope I, I answered your question, but there it is. Hey guys, just want to give you a quick reminder that if you like what you're listening to, we'd really appreciate a quick rating and review of the podcast on iTunes or wherever you're getting this podcast. And if you want to follow us on Twitter, We'd love to interact with you. We can take your questions, answer them on the podcast as well. That is at Kings underscore Pulse. We also got an Instagram, Kings underscore Pulse. And we are the official podcast of uh, Reddit r slash Kings. We got a sticky thread on there if you want to ask questions. So we really appreciate it. And and thank you very much for listening. Are you currently paying off student debt? Interested in improving your financial literacy or looking for new ways to earn income in today's ever-changing digital landscape? Well, on the Talk Money with Mesh Lakani podcast, Mesh will follow paper trails, chat with experts, and break down complex ideas to bring clarity to the mystical financial phenomena. Each episode will be filled with compelling stories covering a broad range of subjects, from buying Bitcoin, dealing with student debt, and everything in between. Listen to Talk Money with Mesh Lakani on Spotify or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts and learn how to spend, invest, and earn for today's economy. Yeah, you definitely did it. It's great to get that insight and your perspective a little bit here. And you mentioned you've been doing this. This is going into your ninth year, I think you said. And tenth. Yeah. Going into your tenth. Okay, so you've completed nine. And we're in this 13-year playoff drought. And we talked a little bit before we started, before we press record. How do you try to stay a little bit positive? Because just like it is for the team, that it's just so so saddening and it's hard to keep your head up a little bit with the failure, I guess. Failure is a, a rough word. Um, but the not seeing the postseason, not playing basketball into the later months of the year, how do you balance between telling it like it is where the team is underperforming and also trying to keep your head up a little bit? Yeah, you know, I had a conversation with Monty Poole, who is our uh, the Warriors insider for NBC Sports uh, Bay Area. And I said, you know, the only difference between your job and my job is that your team won and my team, my team didn't every night. So we're writing the same exact thing. We're, we're focusing on specific items that happen during a game. And, uh, and, and I could be negative the whole time and just lambast. But, um, my point of view has always been that I don't personally have a win loss record. And if I did, I would have probably the worst win loss record of any journalist, uh, in the NBA over a nine year stretch. Um, my best season before last year was 33 wins, which means my best season, what did I get? 49 recaps of losing games. Uh, that's a lot of negativity. And, uh, but uh, again, I, I, I don't go into a, a post game scrum looking to blame. Um, I watch the game just like everyone else does. I see when the Kings start a season with, you know, absolutely. I mean, last season, uh, what did they start? They started with Yogi Ferrell as a starting shooting guard for the first two games of the season. Um, you know, Iman Shumpert started half of the season at small forward position at, at six foot five, completely undersized for the position. So I have to have like a realistic approach of how, how do I, how do I tell the story of what's happening without just saying like, look, every single season you can't walk in with no small forward and you, you have, you don't have any talent. I know uh, the first year that Dave Yeager was there he, it, during preseason, he said, how many, how many NBA starters do I have on my roster? 
And I'm like, oh, I, oh, I don't know. I mean, you at least have five, right? And he goes, do I? He goes, I got George Hill, who can start for most teams. Outside of that, what else do I have? Actually, that was season two. <laughs> but his point was like, look, Zebo is no longer a starter. Costa Cufus hasn't been a starter for a long time. De'Aaron Fox is brand new. All my young, you know, he had maybe one NBA starting caliber player. And I have to walk in balancing, you know, what it is to have a salary cap, how much difference you can make in your roster uh, during an off season with um, limited funds and limited ability to, to sign stars. Like we get to this off season, could all of us have written the, I can't believe the Kings got absolutely no top tier player and this could be another disaster season. I think all of us could. Same time, I look at the roster. I see what their objective is. They think that they have stars and uh, young stars and Fox and, and Bagley and potentially Buddy Heald and Bogdan. And, you know, they think they have an idea of what they have and how they've built it. And then I thought they did a really good job of adding pieces around those players. Like if, if you think those guys are stars, if that's your, your number one point on the board, we have a core of five players that we love. Um, two of which we think can be really, really, you know, all-star level players and, or maybe even three. Um, how do I build around that? I think they did a really good job, but at the end of the day, we could all sit here and scream and yell that they didn't sign Kawhi Leonard. Uh, they didn't make a trade for, you know, any of the big name guys that were available. Uh, it, it, there's just so many avenues that you have to look at. So I think at a certain point you do look at your team through a different lens, but nobody is trying to lose I, you know, even the Kings in their worst seasons, um, there were some tanking at the second half of the season, but no one walked into a season trying to lose and no player in a locker room wants to lose. And so I kind of keep that perspective the whole time. Um, if I see someone who I think is ambivalent, I'll call that out. I'll, I'll say that I think they're ambivalent to winning. Um, or at least I'll think it. And if there's an opportunity to write it in a respectful way that, that makes sense, uh, then I would. But yeah, I, I think I've deviated from your question greatly. But again, I think uh, keeping a positive perspective, like I, you just can't walk in every night thinking that they're going to lose. And even if you know they're going to lose on most nights, you, you got a job to do. You have to write a game recap and you have to write a story in post game. And every single time it can't be that, you know, this guy should have played this moment or this guy missed a big shot. And because it, it just doesn't make any sense. You know, you can call out guys for historically missing every single shot that they ever take in the final two minutes of a game. That's one thing. But like game in and game out, nobody wants to lose those games. And I that's the perspective that I have. Like I'm in the locker room. I see the look on their face. I feel the energy in the room, whether it's a win or a loss. I know where their heart was. And if the heart isn't there and if, if they've given up, um, then that's one thing. And you write it that way. But it's very, very seldom that you see something like that. And so I think maybe uh, maybe that perspective of, of going in is what kind of it humanizes it for me. And I know I got in an argument one time with somebody on Sacktown Royalty, and he said something very specific to me. And I don't even know why I was in the comment section. That was probably a mistake because I haven't gone in the comment section at Sacktown for years now. Uh, but he said, what makes your opinion more valuable than mine? And I said, look, I don't think my, my opinion is more valuable than anyone's. But I'll say this. My opinion is based off of more than just looking at a computer screen. My opinion goes into a locker room. It goes into every coaching meeting. My opinion has off-the-record conversations with people every day that change the way that I view and just the way that I look at things. Now, my opinions may not change, but the way that I look at things uh, can change greatly by understanding other people's perspective and the why to the who and all that stuff. And um, so I think that's that's kind of where I would go with that. I mean, if that, if that makes sense. Like, again, like I remember walking up to Paul Westfall. Uh, it was late in the season, my first year. And I said, um, 
I looked over and Jerry Sloan, Jerry Sloan had just a disaster of a team and he started having issues with, I think Darren Williams. And I said, man, you just feel bad uh, for Jerry to kind of go out like this and, uh, and, you know, look at his roster. And he goes, James, have you looked at my roster? He's like, like 80% of my team is either second round picks or, or undrafted free agents. Like, what do people want me to do? Like, I, I can't turn water into wine. Uh, and it was one of those moments where you're like, okay, I, I get it. Like, uh, you know, seven players from that original team were out of the league within a year. And, I, I mean, that team, the first team I covered, Pooh Jetter, uh, Darnell Jackson, uh, Hassan Whiteside, Dante Green, Luther Head, uh, Antoine Wright. I mean, you're looking at a team of guys that all of them were out of the league. And so how do you walk in and lambast a coach when he's, he, he's not playing with a full deck. And I, so I get it, you know, it, it's a combination of things that play into the way a team is constructed, constructed, the way a team plays, the way a team is coached. Um, sometimes guys get it right. Sometimes they don't. Uh, but, Overall, I think the only guy that I think lost sight of winning and losing during my time was George Carl. And um, I, I just think he was just so bitter and angry about his place in the world at that point. And the fact that he was a great storied coach and that things weren't going the way that he they had always gone for him. Outside of that, everyone has the right motivations. Their motivations have always been to win as many games as possible and to try to develop young players and so I, I respect it. And maybe people on the outside don't. At the same time, you know, I have mountains of conversations with all of these people about why they're doing what they're doing. And I write why, why they think they're doing what they're doing and give you that perspective. And I think some people get muddied that that's my perspective and that that's how I would do things. But it's just not the case. I'm just reporting what they what they are saying, just like this week, I was at Team USA and Steve Kerr went off about Mitch McConnell and politics and my timeline got so dirty and crazy for like 48 hours about people jumping all over me and all over Steve Kerr. But it's my job to report what a head coach says. It's, you know, if he's out there and he wants to say that, it's my job to put that out there. And uh, and that's the perspective that I have. So don't think, I, I think a lot of times people get confused with what I'm writing and what's their message that they're telling you. And that's why we use direct quotes. It's so you understand that that's what a coach is saying. Now I, it's their job. They have a win loss record. I don't. And again, mine would be so bad. I don't even know what it would be, but I'm like a, I'm like a 32% dude, like a 333 <laughs> win percentage. If that. I don't even know if I'm back. So it does feel a little bit different now, at least as far as the win-loss record, like you're talking about. This is the best year that the Kings have had this past year since you started working for, for NBCS Bay Area. And so we know that you are now not a fan. You've had to You've had to renounce your fandom. But as a writer and as a journalist, What's different about these Kings? Because so much has happened positively. Uh, breakout players, of course. We got three guys on Team USA now, uh, as well as, you know, some of those needs that you pointed out, not having a small forward the right size. This past year, the Kings went out, they got Harrison Barnes, who does feel like an adequate small forward. So much, so many big steps have occurred. And how does that change or affect your experience, uh, their courtside? You know, I, I just have to, I think number one, last season was the best group of guys. It was the, the funnest locker room I'd been in, in all my time. Um, and part of that, you know, like the DeMarcus Cousins era wasn't great. Um, and it wasn't all DeMarcus. I mean, I, I think a lot of it was DeMarcus, but there are also, you know, people within the locker room that, that weren't great to have around, uh, or, guys that didn't like certain guys that just wasn't the feel of the locker room. And so I'd say this, uh, their objective was to change the culture of the team. I think it started a couple of years ago. Uh, I think it really did get on the right path. And now I think you've gotten to a point where, 
um, you, you have a good group of young guys and not only do they all get along, um, but on top of that, they actually are good. And so when you, when you look back at the time that I was, that I've covered the team, um, you know, drafting, let's say Jimmer for debt over Kimball Walker, uh, who went like right around the same pick, right? The, the Kings were the seventh pick in that draft and they traded it with, uh, with B- uh, Bano for John Salmons and the number 10 pick. Um, you know, you look at every single step where the Kings could have done something extraordinary and instead every single time chose the wrong path. Uh, and it's just unfortunate because well, who else was in that draft? Uh, I think Clay Thompson was in that draft. I think Kawhi Leonard was in that draft. Um, you get to uh, the next year, and instead of drafting um, Damian Lillard, who everyone in the building loved and thought was going to be an absolute stud, he missed like one shot his entire workout. The night before the draft, I'm told they're drafting Damian Lillard. Uh, Thomas Robinson falls to the the fifth spot. And they draft Thomas Robinson instead. Um, you know, there's just no way that you can, the, the Kings have made so many mistakes. I mean, again, you look at the Ben McLemore pick, you look at the Nick Stauskas pick. Uh, there are really good players all around that could have changed the direction of this franchise. And while I think Vlade has made some huge mistakes, um, I, there's something that Doug Christie has always told me about Vlade. He's the luckiest man alive. Like, it doesn't matter what you're doing with Lottie. He is the luckiest man. So if you're playing cards on a plane, uh, he's going to win almost every single time. He's going to draw cards. He's, it, whatever it is in life, Vlade has, uh, like a big giant charm around him and he does well. Um, again, the, the trade that he made to, to dump, uh, Carl Landry, Jason Thompson, and Nick Stauskas uh, for for cap space, right? It it looks like the worst trade in the history of the NBA. Um, and you look at it now, and you're like, okay, so the Kings got De'Aaron Fox instead of the Jason Tatum, uh, and they gave up the 14th pick in the draft. Um, and, and it just seems to work out for the guy. Um, but his ability to mine and find talent, I, I guess, is – is what stands out. He hasn't missed. And I think a lot of it is luck. Uh, it's luck about who falls to you. It's luck about where you land in the draft. It's luck of moving up from number eight to number two. Um, he's the only one who's ever got two, two Kings draft picks to move up into the top three. Uh, and again, it's that luck that he has. And I think he's done good with, with the luck that he has. Like I know you have your Luca people, but I'm telling you, Marvin Bagley is going to average 20 and 10, and it won't be – if it's not this season, it'll be next season. And he'll average 20 and 10 for a long time, and he can actually average 25 and 12. I mean, he's that good. And I think the De'Aaron Fox pick, again, that's, that was their guy. They had chosen – they had jumped on him so early, and there are other, there are other guys in that draft that may have made sense. So I, I guess that's the, like, the thing that I'll point out, that – this team is built around young pieces and those young pieces are the right young pieces. Uh, they're modern NBA pieces. They're, they fit together. They make sense. Uh, and that's where I kind of walk into this season with like a positive attitude. Like, look, I, I don't know if they're going to win 39 games again. Um, but I also know that they probably should have won 43 last year. So what's a, f- could they have a five game improvement over last year with the changes they've made? Sure. So if I look at it that way and think they should have won 43, could they win 48? The answer is yes. So, but I also know that this is a kinks and it, there's going to be drama. There's going to be things that happen. Um, and so you, you really don't know what you're going to get, but, uh, that's kind of where I would walk into this season and why I think it's different. I think it's different because they've gotten lucky. They've, they've made draft picks that are going to work out that are working out. Uh, they've made moves that worked out. Um, they, uh, the understated value of Ken Catanella is just like shocking. I mean, what he's been able to do with their salary cap, how they walked into this offseason and signed all of these players to two year deals with third year team option. So he has the ability to move one way or the other way. 
I mean, really, there's a lot of pieces that go into this, but I like this team better than I have any of the other teams. It has, they feel like they have a chance. They feel like they want to win and that they want to, to be great and they want to snap that losing streak, the 13 years. Um, but again, uh, they got to go out and play and they got to get some luck and the Western Conference is brutal. I think we'll have to see what happens. Yeah, and I want to speak to some of that young talent, mainly the two guys that you were mentioning in Fox and Bagley, and you were just out there in Team USA. We've seen an insane amount of praise coming about Fox, the pace that he sets, and nobody being able to keep up with him. He did well in the scrimmage. Bagley's out there playing the five, like a lot of us have pushed for, and different things like that. They're very impressive there. What are some of the things that you've heard from these well-respected coaches and other players in Fox and Bagley themselves out there in Vegas for Team USA? You know, I, I talked to Kimball Walker, and he said, you know, uh, he's like, first of all, I can't stay in front of him. He's like, he's so fast. He's like, I don't even know how he does it. He's like, I, I don't, I've never played against a player that's fast like that. He's like, but the other thing is he's knocking down his shots. And he said the moment that that becomes like who he is, a dude who can knock down his shots, he's like – I he just, he becomes unguardable and he's like, he's been hitting the shots nonstop. Um, he's like, that's what's impressed me so much. And then you get to the, uh, the scrimmage and there were so many things hiding in that scrimmage. Uh, he finishes with three blocks and with, uh, with two steals. Oh no, was it? Yeah. 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 It two blocks and I mean, three blocks and either two steals or three steals. Um, his defensive activity, the way that he was stalking players on fast breaks, hiding behind bigs and then popping out and, and getting his hands on balls. Um, the way that he was getting beat up in the pick and roll because he's not used to his big, but he's fighting through screens or then he decided to start going over the top of the screens and then sneaking up behind and blocking guys like Derek White. Um, I, I just, you know, he is, absolutely brilliant uh, when it comes to basketball. And it's something that even when he was young, Dwayne Tickner said, like, look, I went to set him down with an iPad and said, you had seven turnovers last night. He, he goes, let's go throw him. He goes, I don't need to go throw him. He goes, why not? He goes, well, because the first one I was dribbling down the left side and, and I thought I saw something, but I didn't. And I threw the ball out of bounds. And then he was able to go through every single one of his turnovers and explain exactly what happened, why it happened, how he made mistakes, how it was a bad read, uh, whatever it was. He knew from top to bottom exactly what he had done. Um, and that showed, I mean, Tickner was like, look, man, his basketball IQ is just off the charts and he remembers everything. It, it's, he thinks about all of it all the time. And that's what great players do. Um, and if he does develop the jump shot, I think last year he shot well from the field. Uh, he shot over 37% from three, uh, or he shoot like 45% from the field. Um, he's taking steps. Uh, and I just don't see where his, his upside ends. I mean, he does really have unlimited upside. He could get to 20 points a game just by getting free throw calls this year. And, and I think he will, and he can get to nine assists a game so easily especially with the improvements on the roster. And uh, I just think the sky's the limit and, and everyone there in Vegas has been just nothing but complimentary. And, you know, De'Aaron has a swagger to him and a cockiness to him. He fits. He fit. Like you watched day one. He's joking around. He belonged. He knew he belonged. They knew he belonged. And all right, let's go about our business. You know, I'm one of the, I'm one of the guys. And, there's there's something to that, like having that confidence and that moxie that he has, uh, and all of a sudden he has all the skills and the talent to to match his his personality. So I feel perfectly confident in saying that Fox and Bagley definitely have that superstar potential. But the third guy on the Team USA roster for the Kings, uh, I wanted to get your impressions of Harrison Barnes, considering he just uh, signed a four year. Uh, $85 million extension. Have you seen him out there uh, with the team? And and more importantly, just in general, his role for the Kings and that big, long four-year extension. Um, what are your thoughts on that? 
Um, well, okay, okay, a couple of things. Number one, um, his extension, you got to pay somebody. And just so people know, if Harrison Barnes was a free agent this summer and he had not spent 28 games in Sacramento last year, he would not have signed with the Sacramento Kings. His getting a look and a feel for 28 games and knowing that this team is on the right path, um, that led him to believe that this was the right place for him. Um, so just get that out of the way. Uh, he is a, a high-end player, uh, whether he's a perfect small forward or whether you think he's a four, a stretch four. Um, like, look, I think he can play the three. Uh, defensively, he was so much better than I thought he would be. Uh, what his role is to take these young, like, moldable pieces and make them into professionals. And it's something he can be overly professional uh, at times and like slightly robotic when dealing with the media. But uh, there are also things that he does that people don't see. Like he's one of the last guys in the locker room and that's because he's gone and sat in the ice tub. Uh, you know, you'll come in the locker room and he'll have like those, the big um, blow up pant things on the, uh, you know, he's, he's doing treatment on his body at all times uh, at Team USA, we were interviewing De'Aaron. He came over and like stood back behind, like, "All right, he's like, let's go." Like, where are you guys headed? Like, we're going to work out. Like, wait, what? He's like, "You're at Team USA," and he's like, "Oh no, 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 we're going to work out right now. Let's go. We're going to lift." He is taking the young players. He's holding them accountable. He's hitting them with texts and calling them during the off season, making sure they're following through with their stuff. Um, he's been on a winning program. He's won a championship. Uh, he's been part of Team USA since 2010. Um, you know, he, this is a professional basketball player who takes every aspect of, of being a player, uh, very serious, just like Vince Carter does. Um, you know, you don't get to be 42 years old going on 43 and still playing the NBA if you don't take care of your body. And it's, it's those little things that I think Harrison Barnes is going to make a huge difference. The other thing is, again, the Ken Catanella effect. Um, it's a four year, $85 million deal, but it's 24 million in the first year, which is what, like 1.6 million less than what it was supposed to be because he opted out and then resigned. And then it's declining 8% per year until his final year. It's at like 18.7 million. So the declining value contract is is absolutely brilliant and perfect. It fits exactly into where the salary cap is going, the players that you have to sign, uh, you know, and he'll still, he's 27 this season, he'll be 28, 29, and 30. So his final year, he'll still be a 30-year-old guy, uh, which is plenty young enough. And, and so you're not going to see a decline in his play. He's still going to be a strong defensive player. He's still going to be a strong offensive player. When you need him to post up, he can do that. When you need him to guard the big, strong guys uh, that play the wing, he can, where the Kings had literally no one last season coming into the season that could guard a six foot ten small forward. And they're all over the league now. So I, I like Harrison Barnes as a fit. I like him as a personality fit. He's willing to take a backseat role as far as like who's the man on the team. But as far as leadership, it's a lot like Garrett Temple. He's taking a active role in leadership in all aspects of the game behind uh, behind the scenes. The King's Pulse podcast is recorded and hosted on Anchor. It is the easiest way to make a podcast, and it is 100% free. It gives you everything you need to record, edit all of it so it sounds smooth and professional, and upload it all from your phone and or your computer. They distribute your podcast to every major platform. They give you an opportunity to make some money in the process as well. Download the Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Yeah, and another addition that happened during this offseason, obviously there were a bunch. There were Dwayne Dedman, Corey Joseph, Trevor Ariza. One that interests me is Rashawn Holmes because there's Harry Giles in that backup center spot. I know that uh, people have also been saying that there's potential that they like Giles playing a four, but he, he's one of these fan favorites. He's just as popular as Fox or Bagley at times. How do you feel like this little competition for the backup five, if you feel like that is Giles' role, 
behind Deadman between home and Harry is going to play out this season? Well, I think in a perfect world, the Kings, uh, you know, found like the diamond in the rough in Harry Giles. Um, his court vision, his, his skill level, uh, his ability to do so many things is, is elite. Um, but at the same time, um, he's a player who missed basically three years of development. Uh, and he's at like 20, 21 years old. Uh, you can't just wipe out three years of development and, and think that everything's going to be okay. Um, so I think he's had to work on his body a ton. Um, and I, I know I'll say this, but it always sounds weird coming out. Um, he takes off his shirt in the locker room and you go from seeing like this gigantic human being to seeing like a teenage guy. You're like, wait a sec. I mean, he looks like a teenager. He's, he's got like a 28 inch waist. He, he doesn't have like these big, huge ab muscles, his core, his chest. He just, you forget how young he is at all times. And I think the Kings are in love with him still, but they also know that he got leg whipped at the end of last season. And, uh, and then he didn't just shut it down to end the season, but then he took like an extra four to six weeks coming out to get right and to get confident. I think there's always going to be a concern about his knees. There's always going to be concerned that any injury to his legs um, is going to take longer to heal up than you hope. Um, and so when you go into roster construction and you know that Dwayne Dedman has missed, you know, 20 games a year, uh, what he played 61, 62 games last year, uh, that Harry Giles has missed plenty of time. Um, you had to have someone else that you, you hope that can be there and, and fill those spots. Uh, I think the way that the roster is constructed is really intriguing. Um, I think Bagley can play the five. I think Bielitsa can play the five in certain offensive sets where he's just a, a stretch five uh, against small ball uh, lineups. Um, and then you have Holmes, you have Deadman, you have Giles. I, I think it is really complex, but the Kings want to play with pace. They want to run up and down the court. Uh, they also, you know, with Deadman and Holmes, uh, they're both on short-term deals. Deadman is uh, 13.3 million for three straight years, but the last year is like a one point something million dollar buyout. Um, so you really only have yourself tied up to two years with Deadman, and you're hoping that Giles becomes the guy and that he can take over. I personally look at him and and Bagley, and I think that they're mismatched. I, I think that Bagley is a long-term five, and I think Giles is a long-term four. Um, but that's just me. And uh, he's going to have to stay healthy. He's going to have to take a huge leap. I think a lot of us get so intrigued by what he's been able to do that you forget to look at the numbers and really see that he has a long way to go. And hopefully he makes that leap. Um, and I believe that he can. And uh, And that's great. But he actually has to do it. And so I think that's why the Kings bolstered that position so heavily uh, because of, again, Deadman's injury history, Giles' injury history. Uh, and, and then, you know, if you have a chance to sign a guy like Rashawn Holmes who runs out like a crazy PER and makes a huge impact every single time he steps on the court, uh, I, I think it's it's a good move. You got to do it. James, you have made me so happy by mentioning the 4-5 thing with Bagley and Giles, because on, on the very first podcast we did, I I, I had thrown this big conspiracy theory that, like, Bagley's a five and Giles is a four. And I don't know, like, someone please tell me, someone prove to me the opposite, because I don't think it makes any sense. And that's when Bagley was being played at the four, almost exclusively, and Giles is at the five. And then, of course, there's the talk about Bagley at the three that keeps <laughs> surfacing. And no. I, I, I guess we can't, I don't want to get into that, because that, that's just... I'll just get very frustrated, but, um, man, we, uh, you know, I could talk to you all day about the Kings, but I'll get you out of here on, on one last question. I don't think we've talked much about Corey Joseph or Trevor Ariza, the two other vets that are incoming. Uh, what was your impression of those guys? How are they going to affect the team this upcoming year? Um, okay. So I'm, I'm going to finish the other one. The other thought first, it's the swivel and the hips. That's what that's what makes me see Bagley as a five and Giles as a four. Uh, Giles has more wiggle, 
And I, I that to me, just he's not a rim runner. Bagley looks like a rim runner that can do so much more. I mean, I think Bagley's like superstar offensive talent. Um, but that's just to kind of finish that one up. Um, and, and maybe I'm wrong and maybe that will never work out, but uh, I just think that they look that way to me. Um, uh, and I also think that there's a better chance that Giles could play the three than Bagley ever. Like, I just don't see it. Um, but to get to your, your question at hand, um, the Corey Joseph pickup to me is absolutely spectacular and you had to pay a little, uh, more than what you would want. But part of paying him more was with the understanding that, look, you're going to play less. Uh, you know, we were going to buy you to, to fit a role. And that role is to back up De'Aaron Fox. And I, I think he fits. He's a lot like, um, Patrick Beverly. Uh, he's not a great offensive player, uh, but he also doesn't look for his offense. Um, he's got a great assisted turnover ratio, 3.9 to 1, uh, which is spectacular. He doesn't make a bunch of mistakes. Um, and he's going to give you an honest, you know, 18 to 20 minutes. He's going to play hard. He's a very, very good defensive player. Uh, he will walk in and him and Fox will basically be your best defensive perimeter players like instantly. And I just think that he adds the right type of depth at that position. Fox, I believe, can play the one and the two. Uh, you can get out, and, but he's also going to play 30-plus minutes a game. Now, Fox is going to play you know, 34, 35 minutes. And so Corey Joseph is going to have to take a back seat as far as minutes played. But I think what he's going to give you when he is on the court is just really, really strong stability. And if I look at the way that the Kings attacked both the center position and the point guard position, it, it's almost to me like, they thought of one team when they did it, and that is the Los Angeles Clippers. And Lou Williams and Montrez Harrell absolutely destroyed them last year. Every single time they played, it was ugly. It was a bloodbath. And now you have Corey Joseph and uh, Rashawn McCants to go up against those guys and give them a taste of their own medicine. And, you know, if Giles plays, that's great. If Deadman plays against Montrez, that's fine. But now you have three different looks to throw at, at, uh, Montrez Harrell as opposed to what you had last year, which just was ugly. I mean, everyone who stepped on the court got destroyed. Um, and then again, Lou Williams, you have someone to slow him down. Uh, so I totally dig the Corey Joseph, uh, addition. Um, again, if you're looking for him to score 12 points a game, it's not going to happen. Uh, and I, they, they bring back Yogi Ferrell as like an insurance policy. Um, but Fox played a lot of games last year. I think he played, what, 81, 80, 81. And the, the one game he sat early in the season was just because they thought that they put too many miles on him, uh, over the, the previous stretch of games and they wanted to give him like a mental break. Um, and then when you talk about Ariza, I'll go back to the same thing I talked about earlier. He walked in the last season with Iman Shumpert and Justin Jackson as your two small forwards and Iman Shumpert six, five and, uh, Justin Jackson weighs like, you know, maybe like 190. Um, you just got shoved all over the court at that position. And while Justin Jackson, I thought, did uh, a really good job of trying to play passing lanes and trying to get as big as possible, um, he just was at a disadvantage just purely in weight and strength um, when you go up against bigger small forwards. I think adding not only Barnes, but now you have Ariza, I think it just gives you depth of the position that you haven't had. And you know, I, I look at the first year that Dave Yeager had this Kings team. He had Rudy Gay, Omri Caspi, and Matt Barnes as a small forward trio. And, and then you get, like, to the All-Star break that year, and he literally had no one to play the position at all. They go into last season. They have no one that's the right size and fit, and you try to use Bogdan over there, uh, which is fine against smaller guys. He can play against smaller guys, and I expect him to play quite a bit at that small forward position. But having Ariza allows you to do so many things. It allows you to go steal some minutes at the at the four with Barnes um, and, and do, again, a small ball, fast lineup. Um, and he's a season pro. Uh, you know, he's 34 years old. He's not expecting to play 30 minutes a game. But when he played last the second half of last season in Phoenix, I thought he was really good. Um, I mean, in, in Washington, uh, he was really good for Washington, put up, some really solid numbers from a, from an older guy. 
and shows that he can still play at, at a good level and he can still play a lot of minutes if you need it. And I just think, again, this Kings team is deeper than any team that I've ever seen them have in, in my nine seasons covering the team. Yeah, it's, it's so exciting. They have a clear identity. Like you said, one of the deepest teams in Sacramento past for a while and throughout the entire association. But that's mm-hmm. all the time we have right now, James. I cannot thank you enough for coming on here, sharing your insight, giving a little bit of your thoughts on the team. No problem, guys. Uh, sorry if I ran long-winded on a few of those questions. No, it was awesome. It was awesome. And and obviously, our listeners all know who you are already, and I'm sure they read and follow you all the time. But uh, if you don't follow James, please do at James underscore ham NBCS. And, and thank you so much for joining us, man. It's, uh, it's good joining you guys anytime. And thank you to everybody for listening to this episode of the King's Pulse podcast. You will hear from us again in the next couple days.